This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You went from coaching to Wall Street and then from Wall Street back to coaching. So there were two times in your life where you basically had to cross this humongous bridge and convince people on the other side of the bridge that you belong on that side. Yes. So how did you go to Merrill Lynch and say, hey, take a bet on me. Yeah, I've been coaching football for forever and I might not know the first thing about anything, but I'm going to win. The skill sets, Wall Street and coaching, they're different products, but the skill sets that are required for leadership in each or to be successful in each are the same. The skill sets are the same. So very, very often, especially as a leader, those skill sets are tremendously transferable from one profession to the other, not just from football to Wall Street, to Wall Street to football, but to many other walks of life as well. I am so happy to have Joe Mowgli here. And the reason I'm so happy is I feel this guy lives what I consider the American dream. And we'll describe that in a second. 
Joe, I'm going to, first off, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. We're glad to be here. And I'm going to, I'm going to describe your career in kind of, um, a roundabout way. I'm not going to go in order, but, um, uh, everybody knows, uh, the, the company TD Ameritrade, many people bank there, many yep. people traded there when, when it was Ameritrade yep. and, um, you ran Ameritrade, you were CEO, now you're chairman. Uh, you ran Ameritrade for, for seven years about, yep. and uh, uh, it was a huge success. I mean, it went from 700 million in market cap to 12 billion in market cap. Now it's TD Ameritrade. You, you, you built up assets to hundreds of billions of dollars, $300 billion uh, by the end of your, your tenure there, and you're still involved with the company. But then it's really interesting. I'm gonna go back and forth now in this intro, and then we'll get down to the meat of things. You started off your career doing 16 years of football coaching. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, I better find a job where I'm going to make more money. So then you were 17 years at Merrill Lynch and you, you obviously did very good there. Then you were CEO of Ameritrade. You, you were an all-star there and built it up and, and made real wealth. And, and then suddenly you were an intern at for the coach of the Omaha Nighthawks. I was in Nebraska. Yeah, in Nebraska. Nebraska. Yeah. And and I love it. You went from the top of Wall Street to being an intern for a football coach at basically the second tier football league, the the UFL. Okay, you're mixing up the the United Football League. Yeah. Is separate from I was at Nebraska for 2 years. That's okay. where I was the intern. The UFL was I, it was actually a pretty good league. The other coaches in the league were Jim Fossil, New York Giants, um, Denny Green, Minnesota Vikings, uh, Marty Schottenheimer, uh, fifth winningest football coach history of the NFL, Jerry Glanville, and then me. Uh, but I was a head coach in that league. And it was the problem with that league. It was a great league. Um, like I, two-thirds of my team had started the NFL, and I may be the only pro coach that had two Heisman Trophy winners as a quarterback, but I was the head coach of that. So I went from the intern living in a hotel by myself, working for nothing for two years at Nebraska to that job. Then the league went out of business. And then it was 2012 when it went to coastal Carolina. I think it's such an important lesson. Well, and also I'll just add that right now you're the head coach at the coastal Carolina Chanticleers and you've been doing an amazing job. Like, Thank you. You have a huge winning record, which we'll, which we'll get into. And there's, and there's obviously so many parallels to succeeding at wall street and investing and in any area of life and coaching. So, and we'll get to some of those parallels, but what I just love is that you went from the top of the world to saying, you know what? I did it. I've done it. I've been there. And, but I just love coaching and I love football and I'm going to be, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to be an intern. I'm going to be the lowest <laughs> level guy. No one's going to know who I am. I'm sure you, a lot of people you met didn't know in, in another whole category of life, you were at the top. And they're like, oh, this guy's just the intern to the coach. Like, what what was happening right then that that led to that decision? So you you referenced James that we did a pretty good job at Ameritrade, and uh, so when I st I stepped down in two thousand eight, by the time I stepped down. We had six record years in a row. We had our investors had a five hundred percent return. We actually outperformed every financial firm in the in the world. And by the way, this was during the time you were there. It was the financial three crisis. different bear market years. You had March two thousand two thousand and three was serious financial crisis. That's yeah. what got me there. That's when the dot com bubble exploded. And then uh, two thousand six two thousand seven we had the financial crisis. Yeah. So yeah, I had to weather those. We weathered we weathered all those storms. And we'll talk about it because I want to figure out 
how people should weather those types of storms. Obviously, you kept your cool. You you stayed. You remained a leader. Uh, TD Ameritrade wasn't uh, punished by the market in the same way many other banks were, and that was that's an incredibly impressive feat for that time. Thank you. No, yeah. I, I agree. That was true. I'll tell you one more thing. So yeah. one time I was trying. This is just a tangent. But one time I was trying to decide where to put my money, and I was leaving Fidelity for a variety of reasons. And the only two choices I was thinking of were JP Morgan and TD Ameritrade. In the end, I have to say, I decided JP Morgan because I figured, look, if the IRS keeps their money there, I'm going to put some money there. But TD Ameritrade was really attractive to me. I really felt like you guys, because you guys survived the financial crisis without the headlines, you know, oh, Ameritrade did this, Ameritrade, you really survived. And you kind of really catered to both traders and conservative investors. I thought, and you had kind of the influence of both US and Canada financial, you know, universes. Uh, I really considered it. And it was unusual for me to consider, you know, that bank, but I just wanted well, you to JP know that. Well, JP Morgan's <laughs> a great firm, but you would have saved a lot of money if you had TD Ameritrade. Probably. <clears throat> so, okay, so... So it's 2008, and uh, again, we had gotten everything right. I stepped down, and uh, the board asked me if I'd be chairman. I'm still honored to be chairman of the TD Ameritrade. Um, and because we had gotten it right, uh, frankly, I had never been in more demand in my career. Now, remember, 2008, the financial crisis, financial world's blowing up, and we had done a good job. We outperformed everybody else. So, oh, my God. You must, they must have been calling you for AIG, I, I for was, I, No, I was. I had gotten... Some of these things I can't talk about even to today, but I had gotten a lot of calls. And again, I had never been more demand in my life. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess. You don't have to say this or no. I bet you were called for Citigroup. Uh, I'm going to guess AIG, but maybe I'm wrong on that. That's the insurance company that almost blew up or kind of blew up. Uh, I don't, I bet you not Wells Fargo because they probably were hanging on okay at that time. Uh Citigroup's my main bet on this one. And you're smiling, but we won't we'll, say anything. We'll, look, good, thank you. Okay, <laughs> so we won't get there. The um, So, again, there was just one opportunity technically after another, but I didn't step down because I just wanted to get another job. I stepped down because I had done everything I believed I, had, I could do, and we led the industry in consolidation. So once you do that type of deal, I am, my entire mantra is handle responsibility for yourself. So if we were to do another deal, I'm going to be with the firm that much longer. And I thought there still might be other things I might want to do. I wasn't sure what they were, but thought there were other things I might be able to want to do. And if I, if I was still responsible for everything that was going on in Ameritrade and we had done another deal, that'd be another few years before anything like that happened. So I decided to step down. And you were, you were a deal guy in part at Ameritrade. I mean... Look, there was it was Ameritrade. Oh, no, no, you did. bought Think or Swim for for the the, the the hardcore retail investor, and then the merger with TD Toronto Dominion. Yeah, we had what we had done was um, one of the reasons why I took the job from Merrill Lynch and moved from New York City to Omaha was because nobody had started. I was about halfway through that recession. Nobody had started consolidation in the industry. Nobody had done that, and. I thought that if we could get, we were struggling and we were going out of business. And but if we could, sh we could get our thing straight, then potentially we'd be able to start to consolidate in the industry and buy assets far, far cheaper. So when I was there, most deals don't work. But when I was there, we did nine. We did the two largest, and they all worked. Thicker Swim was done by my successor, and then recently, my current our current CEO, we we, we just bought Scott Trade. The way we became TD Ameritrade. 
Ameritrade bought TD Waterhouse right. from TD Financial Group, the parent. And it was important to them to put TD in front of our name. So with regard to anytime you see TD in front of a name, that's always a wholly owned subsidiary except for Ameritrade. We're independent, but TD is our largest shareholder. So that's how we became TD Ameritrade. That's how that happened. And you know, you, you brought up an interesting point, which is a little off on a tangent because I, I I love, again, the, 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 the big... I feel like the big arc of the hero here is leaving Wall Street at the pinnacle and becoming an intern. That's like so, like like you could make a movie out of that. But you said something very interesting, which is really important for entrepreneurs. Most deals don't work out. Like I see this all the time. Company A buys Company B, and three years later they write it down to zero quietly in their filings. Like and all the people quit, and nobody's happy. How do you think you? made a deal work? Because I think this is related to everything else in life. I think there were three things. I think the first thing was each deal, deal was fair. I think there were some times that people are kind of like, they really want to be able to take advantage of another entity. Now, we always want a good deal for us, but if you're going to have to work together and you need to work together somewhat because you're going to be integrating the companies, the respective companies, it should be a long-term relationship. So the best deals are the ones that are good for you and are good for us, number one. Number two, I think, I think, we weren't going to do a deal unless we really believed that it enhanced our shareholders' value and it was a good thing for our client base. So th those two things were very, very real. And when you think about it, they're the only two things that really matter. You're doing a good job taking care of your clients and your shareholders. The other thing that really matters is you're doing a great job taking care of your associates, your employees. So we did that well. And then the third one is I think we did a phenomenal job of communicating with our people. So the worst thing that can happen, it's Wall Street. People understand you may lose your job. Everybody knows and understands that. But if I need, if I'm buying your company, James, and I need you for the next six months, but I don't need you after that, I might want to dine you between now and then, but eventually I'm going to wind up letting you go. Seldom do you find that out to the last minute. So you know that might happen. There's always a cloud over your head. So you can't perform well that way. So we would tell you right away exactly what was going to happen to you. We would make sure that you were probably going to get paid at least for that year more than you've probably ever gotten paid before. We we're going to treat you very fairly. Whenever we told Wall Street we would achieve, let's say, in saving synergies, we always, for the two bigger deals, we always had a synergy bonus. So even if you got mm. fired on day one, like two years later, you would participate in the savings that had taken place, and everybody that was involved with both firms wanted to get getting some stock. That's so, so we did so a great smart. job of treating our people with dignity, respect, especially the ones that were no longer going to have jobs. Because the, those main guys, like let's say you buy a company B, and there's a CEO who's been there for twenty years, and the and the culture underneath him looks up to him as the head of that culture, and you're letting him go on day one. There's a chance for the culture to fall apart. But if you say to him, "Hey, if things go as planned," Two years from now, you're going to get a nice bonus. There's still incentive for the employee, for him to call employees, keep everybody in check, for you to check in with him. Like everybody's still working together as a family almost to, to make sure your goals happen. The CEO is not the concern. The CEO is going to be taken care of. Now, the CEO may have an ego that gets in the way. Like, is he going to run the company, not going to run the company? That often determines his guidance of whether or not maybe his firm should or shouldn't do the job. Wrong reasons to do the job, but egos get in the way here. That's part of the reason why a lot of deals don't work because they're not necessarily the right fits. They don't solve the, the, at least two of those three things that we just talked about. Uh, so a deal may get done because it might be in the best interest of somebody's ego. A deal may not get done 
because it may be the best interest of somebody else's ego. The key, the people you got to pay attention to are the average employee. They're the ones that make the ship run. They're the ones that do the business every day. They're the ones that are interacting with the clients. They're the ones that, that's the heart and blood of your firm. They're the ones that get ignored. So they're right. the ones you got to pay attention to. So I wasn't talking about the other executive team because we're going to do a pretty good job taking care of them. And they already know that. They were involved in kind of putting together a deal. They've done due diligence. The people that we're going to do a great job taking care of are your rank and file employee. And, and how do you then, given that they've been kind of looking up to their executive team for maybe decades, how do you keep them motivated so that they're all on the same team when everything is, is packaged together? There's, there's this crystal clear clarity about what's going to happen to you and your job. So you know, so you know, for example, that we really need you desperately for the next six months. So what we're going to do is we're going to pay you more than you've been getting paid. We're going to pay you uh, a retainer bonus because you stayed with us for the six months. And then we're going to get your bonus for your performance after that. And then if there's a synergy bonus after that, we're going to take care of you there. But at least you know what's going on. The issue is when you don't know. And that's when the cloud's over your head. And you can't give your best when you don't know if you, even if you're going to have a job. If you know you're going to have a job and you know you're going to be well treated, very fairly treated for whatever work you do over the span of the next month, year, whatever it might be, you know what? You're professional. You recognize these things can happen and you step up and wind up doing your job and you get rewarded for that. You can still get another job because people understand that it just didn't work out because there was a merger. It wasn't like you were doing a bad job. In fact, you were asked to stay on for a period of time. But even if you're asked to go right away, you're still getting a good bonus up front. You're still going to participate in the synergies down the road. So it's 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 making sure that that there's clarity around what people anticipate is going to happen with regard to them and their actual career paths. And and I think I think that applies again to every area of life. So let's say you you're put in a situation where you're dealing either professionally or personally with another human being. Like you're a coach, you bring, you draft a, a football player, he's on your team. And you know that it may or may not work out, but you're not sure. There's that, I would imagine there's that, if you're not really clear about expectations, there's that awkward feeling whenever you run into them, like, oh, he doesn't know something I know that he might not work out. But if you're always clear about expectations, you can always go into a situation feeling like, look, I've been really honest with this person. There's nothing hidden we can communicate as two honest people. And I think, or this could occur in a romantic relationship, this could occur if you hire an employee, this could occur if you have a student in a school, anything. There are hundred, I couldn't agree more. There are, regardless of the relationship, regardless of what type of relationship, that's very, very much a fact. So I think there are times by definition where the outcome might be uncertain, but people don't hang in the, uncertainty particularly well. People don't handle ambiguity particularly well. So wherever you can provide clarity in any relationship, um, frankly, in any relationship, this is what I would expect from you, whatever kind it might be. This is what you can expect from me. And you would create a standard. And you create a standard. That standard should be supported by trust. Then you should be able to live up to that standard. So, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think, I think too often what we say to each other tends to be misleading. Oh, we have an ulterior motive, i.e. I'm going to fire you, i.e. I might want to spend time with you tomorrow, but I'm not going to be with you next week. Right, and then there's always that, again, that discomfort when you meet the person and there's some sort of information cloud between the two people and everyone's feeling uncomfortable or tense and it's just not a good way to live life. Agreed, I couldn't agree more. So let me let me test out this theory though. Uh, in the, in, 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 and it'll be a little bit of a tangent. In the late 90s, uh, 
uh, or the mid to late 90s, sometime you got remarried. And <laughs> when you first started dating your your wife, how did you how did you both set expectations with each other? <laughs> Well, I had been single for a while. I had gotten, Kathy, my first wife, and I had broken up when I was defensive coordinator at Dartmouth. That was 1981. After so 17 years of coaching. After, after 16 years of coaching. Actually, we broke up while I was still coaching at Dartmouth. Be before, before you even heard the word Wall Street. Before <laughs> Wall Street. Before there was any thought about Wall Street. And uh, I, I got married in 1995. So there was a 14-year period there where I was single. Now, Amy and I started seeing each other three years before we got married. We became exclusive around the time we got engaged, about a year or so before we got married. But I think early on, I think it was a matter of we were introduced by a, a fellow friend, the couple. In fact, the, one of my best friends, he was killed in the World Trade Center on 9-11. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but you know, it was just a matter of getting to know each other. And then at the time, while I was working at Merrill Lynch downtown, my kids still lived in New Hampshire. So every other week or two or three weeks, I'd make a trip to go up there. And I'm living in New York. She happened to live in Rumson, New Jersey. It wasn't like we saw each other a lot. And she had a couple kids. So I think not seeing each other often was probably a good thing because we just sort of talked a little bit more. We sort of eased into the relationship and we kind of became friends before that came really, really seriously. So you don't begin the type of communication up front necessarily. It takes place over time. It's kind of, you earn trust over time. It doesn't happen instantaneously. Like what was the first situation where, and I know this has nothing to do with coaching or investing or whatever, but what was the first time in that relationship where you had, where you both might've had different philosophies about long-term relationships and you had to sort of come together and compromise. And with that compromise, you're sort of saying, okay, yeah, now we're moving together. I had, as I said, I'd been single for a while and I thought if I were to get married again, it's kind of got to be a soulmate. It's kind of got to be best friends. Uh, I'm not in a hurry. I already have, I was a father. I was already a grandfather. Um, and I think for Amy, um, she had two young sons. I think getting married again was very, very important to her. And over time, we just got to know each other well. And then I knew that at some point, that was a critical decision in her life, that she wanted to do that. And the decision I made was, well, how do I feel about being, would I rather be with her or rather continue to kind of be single and want to doing the things that, 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 that I'm doing? And while I would not have said, hey, I love to get married, I was happy to make that type of commitment to her and to her family, raising my stepsons, et cetera. So that was kind of a compromise. And then I guess also the fact that you had to also travel to New Hampshire occasionally to see your family. She had to be aware that you were going to be traveling. You were working on Wall Street at Merrill Lynch. So I imagine you were traveling a lot for work. So you had to be with somebody who was going to be, you know, okay with you being on the road and not always being around. Was this, uh, this come well, up Well, her dad had actually had a job on Wall Street. He was a corporate okay. communication guy. And her ex-husband had a job on Wall Street. So she had an idea of that. But I was also by then a reasonably senior guy on Wall Street. And I think that that for, and I think she kind of appreciated that part of it as well. So I, I just wasn't some guy still, I was still working my way up the ranks, so to speak, but I had been a pretty senior guy by then. And I think she appreciated that that also, frankly, would help make her life easier. And I was probably a good role model for her with regards to her children. I think both of those things allowed her easier acceptance of the fact that I might be traveling or had another family or whatever it might be. In fact, to give Amy a tremendous amount of credit, she was terrific in helping to bring the both sides of the family together, which she really did do a great job of. So, so it reminds me though that, that, um, you know, you went from coaching to wall street and then from wall street to back to coaching. So there were two times in your life where you basically had to 
cross this humongous bridge and convince people on the other side of the bridge that you belong on that side. Yes. So you had to basically go to Wall Street and Merrill Lynch and say, yeah, I know you could define my life as I'm a coach. You know, in a, in the this world, we always want to label each other. He's a coach. He's an audio engineer. He's a writer. He's a this. He's a uh, Wall Street guy with a suit. Uh, we always want to put labels on each other, even though that never existed before in history. Yeah. But how did you go to Merrill Lynch and say, hey, take a bet on me. Yeah, I've been coaching football for forever and I might not know the first thing about anything, but I'm going to win. So to back up, so to back up a second. So it was 1981. It was my first year as defensive coordinator at Dartmouth in New Hampshire in the Ivy League. And you went to a Cornell. Yeah. All right. So we used to play at Cornell, of course. And we beat you three times, by the way. Yeah, yeah. We uh, had the <laughs> probably... I mean, all the football players were tinier than me. So I don't know how we even... <laughs> they, like, they were quick, tough, and agile then. I don't even know how we could play golf at Cornell. Like, we couldn't do anything. Cornell was a, was a much team. better competitor then. They were a much better competitor then. And uh, uh, so uh, Kathy and I, uh, we had four kids then, and we got married as teenagers, and I became a father right away, and we were going through a divorce. And I couldn't afford to support myself independently and take care of my wife and four children. So I got permission to move into a storage room above the football offices. I didn't mind that so much, but it had no heat. And this is New Hampshire. Colder in New Hampshire than it was at Cornell. And so with no heat, I could see my breath in the wintertime. Well, I lived there for two years. All right, now wow. my goal was to be the head coach at a major, major school one day. I'd written a book on football. I felt great about my career. I thought one day that would be the case. Well, January 1984, Miami upsets Nebraska for the national championship. Howard Schnellenberg is the head coach. Tom Olivadotti is the defensive coordinator. Mike Archer, the secondary coach, gets the head job at LSU. Olivadotti has promised a job with the Cleveland Browns, not that year, but the following year. So I'm offered a job to go down and succeed Archer as a secondary coach and then succeed Olivadotti as defensive coordinator. Now I'm going to go from defensive coordinator in the Ivy League to defensive coordinator for the national championship team. All those guys got phenomenal jobs. But I mentioned maybe before we started the podcast that a coach really does work 75, 80 hours a week. We don't get a day off for about five months, especially back then. We didn't make much money. I'm going to live with Carl Gables. My kids are going to live in New Hampshire. I can't afford to fly him back and forth. So I literally thought I would go months and months and months without ever seeing him. Toughest career decision, James, I've ever made in my life yeah, because was you turning down it. that job. This was your, the, you know, we talked before about what's a, a dream job. You were about to take your dream job or you were on the course for it. And I, I don't know, did you cry? Well, I don't remember if I cried. I remember though, I, I've often said, I teach my kids, I talk to my players about this. Um, when you have to make a really important, I'm very passionate emotional guy. But when you're going to make an important decision, you have got to make it intellectually. You've got to step back. You've got to think it through. You've got to think about it clearly. And it wasn't that I was trying to be father of the year or altruistic, but I really didn't think I could do my job as a coach if I couldn't live up to my responsibilities as a father. I didn't think I could live with that. So if I couldn't live with that, I'm not going to be the coach that I want to be. So why would I go down a path that I'm not going to feel good about? Turning down that job was hard because it was clear but it also meant I had to get out of football. But that was the decision I made, so so be it. There was clarity behind that for me. The other thing, when I had gone to Fordham and I majored in economics, and I always had an interest potentially doing something in Wall Street. So that was my interest. So he asked, how did I get there? Well, I didn't have any contacts, but I coached at Lafayette, I coached at Dartmouth, and I went to Fordham. So I literally went through the, the, the alumni books of anybody that was connected with any one of the three schools that worked on Wall Street. And I kind of put together a one-minute pitch, and I called, and I introduced myself, and I said, you know, I'm an alumnus from Fordham where I coach at Lafayette. I'm coaching at Dartmouth, and I am thinking about doing this. 
meaning go to Wall Street. Here's what I think my skill sets are. Like that took about a minute, minute and a half. What do you think? You think you might be able to help? You got any advice, et cetera. That's how I did that. And I probably, there's no social media then. I was probably on the telephone 200 different times. I probably talked to 100 different people. I still think I actually have the list of people I talked to somewhere. You should uh, frame that. And then, then sell I, it. I, I still got it. And, um, and then Merrill Lynch gave me the opportunity and they put me in their institutional MBA training class. Let's back up for a second in the sense that I think what you glossed over is an incredible thing. So you called 200 people approximately, probably every division of every bank and trading firm out there. That uh, had a connection to either Lafayette, Dartmouth, or Fordham. Right. So you worked through, you didn't call like your best friends and say, hey, do you have a job for me? You kind of work through what's called the, your weak ties. Like, okay, we, we, we have a, an institution we have in common so we can have a conversation. And you were able to use that on that basis, make the call, have a conversation, they were willing to spend a minute or two listening and you had a minute or two to make your pitch. And what did you consider the elements of a strong pitch given that they don't know you and you want them to hire you and be impressed within 60 seconds? Sort of role play for a minute. So let's say I'm talking to somebody at Dartmouth. Now, maybe they follow football. Maybe they know who I am. Maybe they don't. But I talk about I'm the current defensive coordinator at Dartmouth, how proud I am to be there. You're aware of the fact these are some of the things we've accomplished. And I would share, I didn't, wouldn't talk specifically about the Miami job, but I would share, I'm, I've been got, going through a divorce. I've got four kids. I've been living in a loft. And I've got to figure out a better way to support my family. And one of the things that I've always believed in and thought I could be good at was Wall Street. And here's why. Um, the skill sets that I think you need to be successful in Wall Street, number one, you got to be able to handle yourself under pressure. A football coach got to be able to do that. Otherwise, you can't coach. You've got to know, you've got to be able to be a good listener. You've got to be able to understand people. You've got to be able to uh, figure, out, figure out the needs of both what your firm's trying to do and your client. There's a sales job involved with that. There's a market piece involved. Well, that's also recruiting. So I, I'd say, while I don't have a background in Wall Street, I loved economics. I think I have an idea what's going on. And I think I have the skill sets, the likes of which you are probably looking for. I am not your typical 27-year-old MBA that's gone to the best prep schools in the country and the best Ivy League schools. I've grown up in the streets. My father was an immigrant. He never finished eighth grade. I've been selling bananas and apples with him since I was 10 years old. I said, but I've got a career under my belt. I'm a good football coach. I could have a great career. I've written a book on football. I've already gone through a divorce. I've got four kids. You're not hiring a kid here. You're hiring somebody that's willing to give that up and start all over. I just need somebody believing me enough to give me a shot. You know what? You know what's great there too is that not. By the way, I haven't given that pitch in a long time. I thought it was pretty that good was, off the top of good. my head. I would, I would hire you right now. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring, so you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. You mentioned several positive things like, you know, all the skill sets for Wall Street, you translated into the three or four skill sets you had totally mastered and dominated as a coach. You know, kind of the pressure, the ability to figure out someone else's agenda and make it your own and so on. But you also answered the objections before they asked them. Like, you know, you said you weren't the typical uh, MBA. That's going to be the first objection probably on Wall Street. And you, you answered that in a way that they can't argue with. So by the time you're finished with your 60-second pitch, what are they going to say? Like what was what was the biggest pushback after that? If it were a typical person that thinks along the lines of, well, no, this is our policy or these are the guidelines we have, they would automatically be very, very polite, but I wouldn't get asked back. If it was somebody else that was actually, especially somebody in the business, the first thing they would think is whether or not, is this the way a leader would kind of think, would I want this guy on my team? And if their thought process was, you know what, I wouldn't mind taking a shot on this guy. Then on Wall Street, especially, I think it's still it's still the case now. But you got to go, through, you got to meet somebody else. Then you got to meet somebody else. Give me somebody else, and they would want me to go through the process. And most of the time, I'd get asked to wind up going through the process. You know what's great too is also that you were very transparent 
about the personal issues in your life. You said basically you had this opportunity, but you were getting a divorce and you had four kids. So rather than kind of gloss it over and just say, hey, I was always interested in Wall Street and making a lot of money, you kind of gave this personal reason why you're making this career shift. And, and that honesty is important. Well, there's also got to be a motivation for why you're doing this. So this is part, otherwise, frankly, without that motivation, I'm going to still coach. So there's a reason why I, I'm going to leave the profession I love, and I'm not going to go to some other profession that I don't think I'm going to cut out for, and I'm not going to go to some other profession that I don't think I can be passionate about. But I got to start at the bottom, and I'm willing to do that. I'm not at the bottom as a coach, but I'm willing to go to the bottom and start at the bottom, and eventually over time, I'll either prove myself or I won't. Well, well, it's interesting that phrase, at the bottom, because yes, hierarchically, you're going to the from the top of the coaching world to the bottom of Wall Street. But what you said in your pitch, and again, I'm, I'm fascinated by the 60-second pitch because I think that, again, works in many areas of life is, you know, you know the phrase, the 10,000 hour rule, where it takes 10,000 hours to be the best in the world at something? You had put in your 10,000 hours after 16 years of coaching, you felt deep inside, you, you could say to yourself, you could look in the mirror and say to yourself, I'm a great coach and I have these skills. And so what you did in that pitch is you borrowed from those 10,000 hours and almost acted as if it was 10,000 hours on Wall Street. Like those are the same 10,000 hours they had been building that were easily translatable to Wall Street. So you were able to borrow those 10,000 hours and say, this is why I beat out any kid just coming out of school because they don't have the 10,000 hours that, that, that you and I have is, is, your, is what your pitch is. I think that's a far more eloquent way to be able to put that, but I think that's exactly what I was doing. There was, I forget the artist, uh, but recently I saw something where, uh, probably about a month ago, there was this artist, pretty famous person, but I forget his name, and it took him 45 minutes to wind up doing some sort of painting. And then the, the 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 sponsor was asking, well, how much would that be? He says forty thousand dollars. It's forty thousand dollars. Took you forty five minutes. He goes, excuse me, it took me forty five years. And that's the same principle. That's the exact same principle. The skill sets, Wall Street and coaching, they're different products, but the skill sets that are required for leadership in each or to be successful in each are the same. The skill sets are the same. So very, very often, especially as a leader, those skill sets are tremendously transferable from one profession to the other, not just from football to Wall Street to Wall Street to football, but to many other walks of life as well. Right. So like, let's look at, at two examples from Wall Street to football or football to Wall Street. So if you're on Wall Street and you're trying to pitch a high net worth or institutional client, hey, I'll take care of your bond portfolio, compare that to recruiting a high school student for you know, a college football team. Okay, so at the end of the day, the only reason why a, a good football player is going to come to our Coastal Carolina is because because he's being recruited by many other schools because he believes long-term that's in his best interest. So what are the things that matter to him the most? Now, we're recruiting a lot of different players. So I go out of my way to emphasize one of the mistakes that college football coaches make in terms of recruiting, they evaluate, they give the coaches a pat on the back for the kid when he signs. But if you do an analysis, uh, what the team, what the recruiting class looked like on signing day and what they look like two years later, probably 50% of those kids are mistakes. So you evaluate the coach's recruiter two years after he signs a kid, not on signing day when everybody's a rah-rah and everybody think, thinks everything's going well. So the big point I make is that we believe in what we've got. We think we've got a great program, but you should only come here as a great fit for you. And there's two things that make us unique from other programs. One, we don't have any rules. We have this concept called BAM. That's what we live on. That's the whole philosophy upon which we build a program. Secondly, 
we're going to absolutely focus on what your life is going to be like at the football. We've got nine guys the previous four years that are playing professional ball. That's more than 85% of the big schools in the country. But we also have 41 guys that have done graduate work while they're playing for us in the last five years. Except for Stanford, nobody in the country can even come close to anything like that. So we make it clear. If you're good enough to get to the NFL, we're going to get you to the NFL. But we're going to do, we're totally committed to laying a foundation upon what you're going to live later on. Now, how do we prove that? What makes us unique? We're the only football program in the nation. I give up 30, 30 minutes of practice every week. I'm going to repeat that. We give up 30 minutes of practice a week. Nobody does that. And we have an LAF session, Life After Football, that normally I run it's with the team. Not always I run it. But we talk about things that have nothing to do with football. They might have something to do with BAM, taking responsibility for yourself, but they have nothing to do with football. But the things going on in the world that are important, that are critical, that really do matter. Now, if these two things are not critical and important to you. This is the wrong school for you. If these things turn you on, if you get little goosebumps when I talk about BAM, and if you realize the value added that actually we, we bring to the table by our, by, our, by our commitment to the life after football piece, this is the right school for you. Now I'm talking to an institutional investor. I'm talking to T. Rowe Price. I'm talking to uh, an insurance company, travels insurance company. And it's, it's kind of the same thing. First of all, I try to understand your job almost to the point where I could do it as well as you can, if I had to. I understand how you get paid. I understand all those things. So I'm going to take a longer time to kind of do my due diligence the most. I'm not trying to do a little bond sale for you. So I'm sitting down, and now I understand your job. I understand how you get paid. I understand how you're going to get evaluated. And my commitment to you is I'm going to cover fewer accounts. I'm going to do it not by myself but with a team, and I'm going to do everything I can to help you do your job better. If you, that's okay with you, then in return, I'm going to expect more than my fair share of business. So I'm going to cover fewer accounts. If that works for you, then let's go after this as hard as we can. Now, if I don't feel you're giving me more than your fair share of business, I'm going to devote my energies elsewhere. If you feel good about what I'm doing, well, hopefully this becomes a great long-term relationship and we're both going to be very, very happy. I'll help you do your job better. You're going to help us get, 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 uh, help, help us be rewarded for the job we're doing for you. So the bottom line, it's got to be in your best interest. It's got to fit. Earlier I talked about an M&A deal. It's got to work for both sides. It's got to work for both sides. So, so it's interesting. It's like like with the, with the high school student going to college, you're not just saying, hey, we're going to be a winning team and that's going to help you and we're going to train you well because it's like many football coaches could say that. You're really basically saying, hey, we're going to take you as a young 18-year-old and we're going to... We're going to help you grow up. We're going to help you understand the world. So, so even if you don't become a professional football player, you're going to be great at what you do. We're, we're, we're teaching basically how to take responsibility for your actions, how to be great at anything you can do. And here's how we do that. It's not just something I'm saying. Here's how we actually do that. And so with the, with the Wall Street guy, with let's say you know, some, some big CEO you're, you're pitching, you're saying, look, I understand. We're, we're not just going to, I don't just have a single trade for you where you're going to make 6% more than the other guy. I'm going to take a look at your whole financial needs and we're going to cover them. We're going to, you're going to have me on the phone whenever you want. And I'm going to help you get through kind of this financial maze that we're, that we're in right now. So you're sort of zooming out and looking at each person's bigger picture. I agree. That's well said. At the end of the day though, what the high school recruit has to determine is what we're trying to do is in the student athlete's best interest. In so doing that, we're going to get kids who really want to be at our place, and that's in our best interest. For the institutional money manager, it's, I'm, doing, I'm going to do everything I can, give you all the resources we have at Merrill Lynch, and we're going to do everything we can to help you do your job better. In return, we're going to get paid for that. 
Uh, so at the end of the day, we're going to do everything we can that's in your best interest, and we think we're going to get rewarded with that by having better players, and therefore a more successful uh, program, or by having a more successful P&L with regards to our overall balance sheet. So it's kind of like, so, 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 so it's almost like I can, I'm kind of deriving a step-by-step formula to your success while, while you're talking. I, I'll write the book on your, <laughs> uh, on your 12 maxims of success. But let's say, um, uh, you know, you, 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 you're at Merrill Lynch, you're, you're dealing with someone's portfolio. I think a lot of it too is uh, taking responsibility for your actions. If you like lose money for somebody and you have to give them the call, what do you, what do you do then? I think one of the things that I said earlier, what you've got to have to be successful, you've got to handle yourself well under stress. You've got to be good under stress. Well, things don't always go well. You don't always win games. You don't always have a successful day. Uh, you don't always make money for your client base. But you've got to be upfront about that, and you've got to be able to talk about it openly. But you don't just call and say, hey, it's on me. We blew the trade or like we lost the game. You have to understand why you had a bad trade or why the investment didn't work or why you had a bad game because you've got to be able to solve for that problem. So you've got to prioritize what the mistake is. You've got to understand why you had a mistake and then you solve for the mistake. And then how do you know you solve for the mistake? Because it's fixed and it doesn't happen again. So if I made a mistake on investment, I may still make mistakes on other investment, but I'm not going to make that mistake again. If I'm making mistakes in terms of the way we call a game or prepare for a, ga- for a game, I want to think, we're not going to make those mistakes again. We're going to correct those mistakes. What happens is people say, oh, yeah, we're going to figure it's on me, like they own up for it. But let's get responsibility means you fix the problem, you solve for the problem. So while everybody else might be kind of pulling back a little bit during a tough time, we're probably going to be in front of you the most during a tough time. And so now here we are, let's fast forward into 2008. You're at the top of the game. It is the financial crisis, but because you guys are doing well, you're getting opportunities. Boom, what happened? It's like you were hit by lightning and you're like, okay, I'm going to just be an intern in Nebraska. (laughs) I get a call from a group of alumni at Yale telling me the end of the 2008 season was a chance the football job would be open. Would I be interested? Why'd they even think to call the CEO of Ameritrade? (laughs) The guy that actually made the call had played football at Yale. He actually was the CEO and chairman of Franklin Templeton at the time. We had worked together. He loved the fact that I had a background in football. Uh, We had developed a great relationship. He loved my leadership style. And when this came up, he wasn't wasn't restricted by the typical outline. This is is what we expect to a particular candidate. So I asked him, I I said, Charlie, I haven't coached in 20 years, you know, and he goes, Joe, I know that. But I spent a lot of time with my colleagues looking at what are the skill sets that are required for a really successful head college coach. And we think you not only have those skill sets, but we actually think you have competitive advantages in those. There's one problem. I said, what's that? Well, at the time, in 108 years of college football, nothing like this has ever happened. And it's going to take a very, very rare president or athletic director to say, let me go with a guy that nobody in the college world in 108 years has ever gone with. But why don't you think about it? And I did. And I spent the next few months writing a lot of notes, the pluses and the minuses. Do I really think, what do I really think about this? And at a point in time, really, where I could have done probably anything I wanted, probably the most difficult one was to say I'm going to go back to football because number one, had never been done before. But number two, I'm not, people will get surprised at this. I'm not a big football fan. I don't know who's playing quarterback. I'm not a big football fan. I don't know who's playing quarterback for who. I don't know who's, where teams are in, in, in the NFL in terms of records, but 
I do love the strategy of the game. It's like master's chess with 22 people get together, coming together, moving at once with a lot at stake, with a lot going on. I find that intellectually stimulating. I think it's something I'm pretty good at. The other thing, you put together a large organization. I know I can do that. I take pride in that, but I know I can do that. But the other thing, I think that what I'll have on my tombstone, I had an impact on others. Whether it's the business world or the coaching world, having had an impact on other people makes my heart feel good. And I thought at this point in my life, how, how rewarding would it be to truly have an impact on helping an 18 to 22 year old really grow up and find who he is and actually become a man. I don't mean the band thing, I would just become a man. And I decided in the face of all odds, I would go back. I got the opportunity because I was in Nebraska. I knew some of the people at Nebraska. They introduced me to the head coach, Bo Pelini. He loved my story. And he says, I think you're crazy going back to football. But if you're going to do that, I'd like you to do that with me. And that's how I wound up in Nebraska. So, so I, my title, I was actually, I was an intern, but my title was an executive advisor to the football, head football coach. So, so let me just try to imagine the conversation between you and your wife, Amy. So... <laughs> Amy, uh, XYZ Mega Bank just called me and offered the CEO job. Maybe in 10 years, I could retire with an extra 200 million. I'm just making up numbers. Who knows? Um, or I can be an intern and work for free in Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> What's her response? Well, now remember, we lived in Omaha because Meritrade was headquartered in Omaha. Okay. So this is an but, hour but, but away. But I imagine like, your opportunity, though. Yeah, you're right. You're right at yeah. that in terms of, but it didn't require another move. And I think the. Um, Amy loved the idea. I mean, she loved the position I had when I was in Maryland. She loved the position we had at Ameritrade, TD Ameritrade. Um, she loved that. She didn't. She wasn't crazy about. She didn't like the idea of becoming a coach. And I think she thought if you're going to step down, well, then you know we should be living a good life. We should be doing a lot of different things. But um, not crazy about the coaching thing. Now, like we, she we, wanted we, to travel the world, or she wanted be to do charities. She, and, happy to do things. Happy if I took another big job or happy to do those things, but didn't feel good about my going back to football per se. And that was one of the things that, because I was still in Nebraska, it was an easier decision. And I was in Nebraska for two years, and then I was in the United Football League in Omaha for one year. It was when I took the job at Coastal Carolina where at the end of the day, and we were having some troubles up until then, because that just didn't happen that day. But up until then, I think having to make a move to South Carolina, doing all those things, I think she, she, she just felt that, you know what, this is really not kind of the direction I want to take my life. And we were moving a little bit in different directions and, and we decided to separate. So. So, so you start, so, so again, though, you, it's almost like now you had, 10,000 hours, not just as coaching or not just in Wall Street, but also you develop the skill set of how you translate skills from one completely different area to another. And so even though even though football itself had changed, I'm sure, during the 16 years you were no longer coaching, like you said, you weren't even a super football fan. It was more kind of the meta aspects of how does one coach? How does one motivate? How does one delegate the things that you're probably weaker in and and build up a team and coaching expertise. And you, and you started off as, as an intern so you could see how a coach was doing it. So you learned quickly what you had missed in those 16 years of not coaching. I think also it wasn't like anybody was just going to turn around and give me an opportunity. So I needed to be able to do that. My first year at Nebraska, I created an hypothesis. Number one, do I still really have the skill sets to be really good at this as a head coach? Number two, 
is this something I really am still ready for that I have the energy for and I'd still be passionate about? How'd you develop the metrics to decide on either of those? I, I have, there are two things in my life that have, I think, separated me from others. The one is the BAM principle. BAM being, you know, in your, be a man or take responsibility for your actions. Take responsibility for your actions. Now, that shouldn't be a sexist comment. So it's not be a man, some tough macho guy. I raised my daughters on those principles. Right, it was just the football yeah. team as men. Yes, yes. Um, so BAM was one, but the other one was a concept that called spiritual soundness. Now, what does that mean? It can be religious, but it doesn't have to be. I believe, James, that most people really don't know, understand who they are. I think we, we, have, we are the perception of a composite of people around us. For a kid, like who I am really depends on if I'm talking to my father versus my mother versus my girlfriend versus my brother versus my buddy versus my teammate versus my coach. And as time goes on, we really, really don't quite understand that. Therefore, when we make decisions, we tend to make a decision not quite understanding who we are. We make decisions tend to be more emotional when they should be made a little bit more intellectual. So for me, spiritual soundness is who am I really? What kind of person am I? And you just begin writing. What's my favorite colors? What's my favorite music? What do I like? What do I, what, what do I not like? What turns me on? What turns me off? Uh, what are my skill sets? Get a little deeper. What kind of father am I? What kind of coach am I? What kind of brother am I? What kind of friend am I? What kind of person am I? What kind of husband am I? Was I? Uh, uh, how am I doing in my financial life? How am I doing in my physical life? Um, how, all these different phases of your life. Now, what happens is you get away from it for a little while. Now, you go back to it and you go through that list. Say, That's not true. You know what? That's not true. That's not true. And I think I don't like that, but the reality is <laughs> I don't like it because my girlfriend doesn't like it, so I act like I don't like it. But the truth is I do like that. Mm -hmm. Or there's something else I think I'm really, I love, but I, think, but I don't have any of the skill sets for. And you start to learn who you are, and you realize that as you go through this, the only, only requir there's two requirements. One, totally, absolutely honest, and no one else ever sees it. Is the first time you show to somebody else, you're subconsciously looking for their approval. And this is the point. It's got nothing to do with anybody else. This is you looking in the mirror. That's it. It's you and only you. Well, Oftentimes, well, it probably takes a year to get this done. What, during this process, when you were making this shift, surprised you? Like, what did you think you were good at that maybe you were a little weaker than you thought? You know, and... Well, I think the difference maybe with somebody just starting it, I kind of started to figure this out on my own when I got married the first time. I was becoming a father. Uh, I didn't think it through this way, but I thought through. Uh, my father, when I was going to have to give up sports, I was going to become a father. Uh, my father actually wanted me not to go to college. He wanted me to go work for him in the fruit store. I said earlier, he never finished eighth grade. He sold bananas and apples in life up on 181st Street in the Washington Heights section. I worked for him the time I was 10 to the time I was 22. Now, you learn a lot from your parents. You learn sometimes what to do and what not to do. And my dad was always unhappy. And the BAM thing, dad didn't believe in the BAM thing. Everybody was always somebody else's fault. The glass was usually half empty. We never took a vacation, never had any hobbies. And when I looked at, when I looked at kind of just his perspective on things, I said, why would I want to do something? My father worked hard, worked six days a week, 13 hours a day. I said, why would I want to do something for the rest of my life that I don't like doing, that I don't love doing, that I can't get excited about? And part of it, my dad had a glass half empty sort of mentality. So I learned what not to do really very much as a leader in terms of making life decisions from my father. So one of those was that I appreciate your support and I love you, the fact you worked hard your ass off for us in the fruit store. But if I go to the fruit store and I don't go to college, you know, I am never going to do anything else that maybe I would have wanted to do. I just think I have to go to college. He reminded me we had no money. I said, I understood that. But then he said, think about it. I literally went to him the next day and said, Dad, I'm going to go to college. He said, son, you're making a big mistake. Now, remember, I'm getting married. I'm going to be a father. I've given up sports. I got to pay my whole tuition. I decide I'm going to go to college. My father says, 
That's a bad decision. Now, that was a spiritual soundness exercise without me thinking it was spiritual soundness. Later on, when I was in college, I wanted to go, I thought I wanted to be an investment banker or something on Wall Street. I kind of liked it. I majored in economics, kind of liked economics. But I began coaching my sophomore, junior, senior year. And I so loved the coaching, got so much satisfaction out of it. I thought I was good at it. I said, if I could get a head high school job upon graduating from college, I'd want to pursue a career in coaching. If not, I'm going to go try to see what I can do, get a job on Wall Street. Well, at 22, I become the youngest football coach in the state of Delaware, and I began my coaching career. And you know where that ended, kind of at least the first time around, 16 years later. When I was making that decision, I had never been more than 10, 15 miles outside of New York City. And this was in Delaware. I thought Delaware was the deep south. I didn't even know it was. I remember we're getting going down for my interview, <laughs> my senior year of college, and I got on the Jersey Turnpike, and I said, the Delaware Memorial Bridge, and the guy said, 118 miles that way. And after 10 miles, I said, my God, I haven't hit a light yet. I thought this was so cool. And, but then I really started to kind of dig deep on this. I said, why do I really want to do this? I mean, it's a little scary. You know, I'm going to Delaware. I, I, I'm leaving home. I'm am I really sure this is what I want? And I started to go through these exercises and kind of what do I care about? What matters to me? And that's where the spiritual soundness kind of thing began for me. And the very first talk I gave to my team when I was 22 years old was I said, we're going to want to win. We're going to want to do all those things. But this is more about helping you grow up, become a man. And I said, a man is somebody who stands on two feet, takes responsibility for himself and loses the consequences of his actions. And a real man understands what that is by going through the following concepts. Spiritual soundness, dedication, courage, and love. I gave that talk when I was 22 years old. That's still the heart of everything I do today, and it's still the talk that I give. The only thing I added to BAM was, and treats other people with dignity and respect. Well, you know you know what's interesting is, and we started talking about this before the podcast started, but you were very passionate about football and coaching, and obviously you were so passionate that you returned to it after uh, a great career on Wall Street, uh, and you were able to translate that passion, of course, into what you did on Wall Street. But I really do think that the, the person who is it doesn't matter about talent or or even skill. The person who is passionate is going to develop their talents and their skills more than the person who is not passionate about something. You're going to be willing to put in the 80 hours a week to do it. You're going to love it. So you're going to look at all the nuances. You're going to be creative while you're dreaming. And you're going to be excited about your creativity in the space. And that's just always going to help you win. That's that's the love of of what you're doing, and and to be able to translate that to all the people around you, I think, is an important skill. And it sounds like that's what part of what you were doing. A hundred percent, I agree with that. But I would add something else. So the big thing for me is, it's not about winning or losing. How do you maximize your talent? How how can maximize the potential of whatever your responsibility is? How can you do something that that you know you know is the best job you could possibly do? How do you know that? Well, to be able to do that, to really truly, truly be the best you can be. James, you're comparing somebody that's passionate about something versus somebody that's not passionate about. I agree. But I'm comparing, you want to be the best you can be and maximize your potential, you got to be passionate, but you also have to have the skill sets. Those two combinations will make you far more effective than somebody else doing it who's also passionate but may not have the skill sets. That's why I think the two of them work together. And how do you know what... So you described kind of the the meta skill sets you need, like you know, t- living living with the consequences, taking responsibilities for your actions, uh, having love for what you do. But how do you know? How do you learn what the specific skill sets are that you need to learn? Um, and obviously, you translated these meta skill sets from football to Wall Street, then back to football. But when you came back to football and you were an intern, how did you start to see? Okay, I now need to develop this micro skill set to succeed that was different than sixteen years ago. Like, how did you? 
How do you start to figure out the lay of the land? What are the what are the actual skill sets you need to learn? You try to do that before you even begin. So you got to do your homework. So remember I said before I decided I want to go back to football, I spent six months thinking about it. Now, I spent 16 years as a coach. I know what coaching is. So you got to, it's not that I had to learn football all over again. I had to learn whether or not this was something I really wanted to do again. The skill sets really hadn't changed much. The skill sets are the skill sets. Football hasn't changed. Football's not solving cancer. It's not putting somebody on the moon. It's football. And uh, so it's the skill sets that are required. So it, normally what you have to do, you've got to do some work. It's not like, oh, I want to be an astronaut because it's cool. No, what's required to be, you got to do your homework. You got to do due diligence. You got to go after it. You got to study. You got to ask people that are trying to be astronauts. You got to ask people that are astronauts. You got to ask people that used to be astronauts. You got to you, uh, talk to people that cover astronauts. You learn what you can about astronauts. And the whole thing you're looking for is what's exactly the job and then what are the skill sets that are required for success in that job? You got to do that ahead of time. Now, you learn while you're doing. You learn tremendous amount while you're doing, but you've got to have that kind of set up, at least initially. Now, if you're 22 years old, you graduate from college, you're doing the same thing, but you've got less experience. If you're going through the process, that's good. If you made a mistake, you know what? Not the end of the world. Then go through that process again, try to understand where you made a mistake and give something else another shot. But as you've gone through things, as you become more experienced, you should do a better job of accurately evaluating what the skill sets are to be effective in a particular career path. So when I went to Nebraska, I wasn't surprised by any of the skill sets. None of the skill sets were a surprise to me. The only thing that was a surprise to me, and it wasn't a surprise, it was just the game had changed some in terms of the speed of the game, a couple of other things, but people don't really change. You know, everybody asks like, well, the kids are today are different. I don't buy that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, kids go through the same... Uh, concerned about, you know, peer pressure, about drugs, about alcohol, about sex, about tension at home, tension with the coaches, tension with the teachers that they did when I was growing up. So when I coached the first time, raising my own children, coaching this time, people go through the same thing. So it's the same thing. The heart and the soul is still the same thing. They've got the same anxieties, the same uh, same dreams. All the, the world's changed. We're faster. We're a technology world. Everybody's connected. That doesn't mean people, human beings actually change. So... With regard to, let's say, at Nebraska, what I was doing was just testing was, is the job that I believe it is, is that accurate? Two, am I still really cut out for this? And three, do I have the energy? Because nobody's going to give me the world championship team. Do I have the energy to go back and start all over doing this again? And it'll be something that I love just as much as I did the first time. That was what I was trying to solve for. But I wasn't surprised by any of the skill sets. And how did you solve that given that you hadn't started yet? You're still you're still at Wall Street, or you're still between things. And how do you decide, okay, I'm cut out for this and this is what I want to do? Well, when I had stepped down, it was after I stepped down where I started right. to get all these calls and I started to get the call from Yale. Okay, so it was about six months later where I decided I wanted to, so I'm already stepped down. So I'm no longer CEO, I am chairman, but I no longer have the responsibility that I used to have. So I spend a lot of time trying to get myself in shape, thinking about these different things. So I had that down. So when I started, when, I, when Bo Pelini gave me the opportunity and I began with Bo, I mean, I had to learn the system. I had to catch up on a lot of things. Uh, I, I recognized I wasn't necessarily accepted by the other coaches. Yeah, do they think that, oh, he's... He's got it easy. He already did his thing on Wall Street. He could do, he, he's just hanging, he bought his way into here. He, he, Bo he Pelini, doesn't earn it. Bo Pelini, the head coach, knew my background inside out. He knew I was a coach, wanted to come back to coaching. And knew I had been successful doing something else. Tom Osborne, NCAA Hall of Fame coach, uh, he was the athletic director that, that also knew that and introduced me to Bo. Of the guys on the staff, I'd say probably 70% of them 
They didn't do any of the homework. And to them, I was just the TD Ameritrade guy. This is just some business guy that wants to come in. He wants to be, wants to coach. And that was almost like a little bit of an insult. Who's this guy thinking come in and do that? But people that knew me knew I wasn't some business guy going to coaching. I was a coach who did something else for a while, was good at it. Now I could do something else and I'm choosing to go back and starting all over at the bottom as a coach. And so that's why he's decided, don't give me any real title. Let me just start as an intern kind of work my way up. Well, no, I didn't. No, the NCAA has very specific rules. So you're only allowed X amount of full-time coaches. Well, they already had that. So, but you're allowed analyst interns. So the only job that potentially would have been available would have been an analyst intern job. Now, I have tremendous appreciation to Bo, my boss, the head coach, because he did respect the fact that I had been a coach. I was a successful coach and had gone through all these different things in my life. And now I wanted to do this. So he didn't want to treat me like just some 25-year-old intern. So he said, I want you to have a title. I'm not going to ask you to do a lot of like mundane stuff. And like part of this is I'm going to do all I can to help you get ready to go back to coaching. And you know, I know you'll do all you can. I want to be a better CEO type coach and I'm going to count on you. We're going to help each other. And I took, so therefore he wound up giving me the title of executive advisor to the head football coach. So that was a great title. I like that. But I was an intern. So so I have a totally naive question about football. And but 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 you'll be able to answer this. So uh when I think about a, a football play and I think about a Wall Street investment, one thing strikes me as totally the same. You want to always go to the place where it's least crowded. So if I make an investment, I want to go to the place where nobody else is really Put all their investments yet? I've kind of discovered some little pocket where I could throw some money in every, before everyone else does. If I'm making a foot, if I'm a coach and I'm trying to figure out a new football play, I want my wide receiver to be standing where no one else is guarding him, where it's least crowded. So when I see a football play, it's all these X's and O's and people running here and there. Uh, what's what's an example? of a good football play that you would think of right now? I know this is a stupid question, but I'm just really good, curious. No, but n number one, I think that's not naive. That's actually very insightful. So you go back to coaches kind of look at their profession sort of as a special thing unto itself. But the, the art and the science of football is the product. That's one thing. But how you solve problems, NASA, I'm sure I'm off on this numbers, to put somebody on the moon has to go through like a million three hundred fifty thousand steps, and they got to get every one of those perfect right. before they're going to let the rocket take off. Um, they can do that, but a football coach—the biggest reason why anybody loses games is because we made mistakes. Players made mistakes. You got eleven guys that got to act together in unison without mistakes for five six seconds. Why isn't that possible to do? NASA can do it a million three hundred fifty thousand steps. Football coach will come up with reasons why. Well, it's much harder at football. Please excuse me. So you mean it's hard. so it's recruiting coaches? They recruit. Well, that's only coaches could do it. We got to do it this way. We got to do it that way. Recruiting, other than evaluating the talent, recruiting's got nothing to do with football. It's sales, it's marketing, it's logistics, it's processes. The skill sets for both of those, how you solve problems and how you recruit have nothing to do with football. The best, the best ideas for that come outside of football. But football is not necessarily particularly open to the ideas that are coming in from the outside. So to go to the point you made, because I really love, love, love the insight behind it. If I am only a coach, and I recognize, doesn't it make sense to throw it to the guy when nobody's around him? Well, now I'm making an investment. Doesn't it make sense to make the investment that's the least crowded where I can make, make the most money because nobody else pay attention to it? Now, that's not easy to do, but that's an accurate concept. So that concept 
doesn't matter if it's football or business or Wall Street. The business guy that doesn't know anything about football but, you know, wants to be a coach understands I'd rather make an investment just the way you said. But now, I don't know that much about football, but like, wouldn't it make sense to throw to that guy? Now you're going to give me three reasons why you don't want to throw to that guy? Well, there's nobody around that guy. Why don't you just throw to that guy? And there really is tremendous – it's common sense. But being away from the game or outside the game or being away from Wall Street allows you to think a little bit more sometimes – you're outside it, so you're not emotionally attached to it, and sometimes you get lost for the, in the forest for the trees. Uh, so I think I think so. Your question now, so I'm giving you credit for insight, insightful. That I wasn't you. naive at all. <laughs> uh, the, the question is to me, it will take hours for coaches to come up with what they call the perfect design, with the perfect adjustments, and everything that can happen, and that's the perfect. And they'll spend hours on that. They'll do a great job with that, but. You fail because your players make mistakes during the game. So to me, and the, the other team could react differently. Of course, of course. So the perfect—that's that, why and other people are investing. That's why it may not be that easy to do that. But the point, whether throw to the guy that's totally open or throw or make an investment over here, but that's the accurate point. Not easy to do, but it's an accurate point. With regards to this, the perfect play to me is the one that there's a beauty to the simplicity of flawless execution. And oftentimes, no matter how sophisticated it seems and how perfect it is, that's not what 11 guys can, can execute. So you've got to, the snaps, it takes five, six seconds to play. So a player then has to know his job, know the call. He's got to understand the call so he can make adjustments. He can make adjustments. He's got to make adjustments pre-snap and post-snap. He's got to be able, he's got to be able to do this, by the way, under tremendous physical competition with somebody that's trying to take his head off. And by the way, 11 guys have to do this simultaneously at once. That's a lot to ask somebody. So most of the time we ask them too much. There's not, there's the beauty to flawless execution, the simplicity of flawless execution that is far greater than the perfect call or the perfect play or the perfect system. I see. So even if you had like this great, creative, amazing play, there's so many ways it can go wrong. You might want to just keep it simple. Like, hey, just throw your wide receiver as soon as the snap happens and see what happens. That's right. Now, the truth is somewhere in there is what reality is. But yeah, that's right. All right, so I'm going to make up a play, and you tell me why it's bad. I know this is like off kind of the topic. I'll tell you. I'm just fascinating. So I'm the quarterback, and Steve Cohen, don't laugh at my play. Hi, Steve. Nice to meet you, by the way. <laughs> so, and so, so I'm the quarterback. There's uh, the tight end runs behind me right before the snap, you know, depending on the rules. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And I hand it to him. He runs to to the left of the field. So now all the defense is running towards where the tight end, tight end who has the ball. Now he snaps it back to the quarterback who's all the, who's down on the right side of the field and nobody's there. And now the quarterback catches it and runs up the right side of the field. Why is that a totally bad play? That seems oh, like a good, it's a good play, play to me. It's a good play. Now what you're leaving out though, are there are nine other guys on the field. So any one of those other nine guys make a mistake, that play's probably not going to work. So the offensive team, the offensive line for the most part, keeps on signaling that the ball is going to the left. So they're moving towards the left with the tight end. Maybe only one guy's guarding the quarterback, so we're fooling the defensive line about who they're covering. And, uh, you know, we're going where it's least crowded. So so I'm thinking a little bit of the nine other guys. Yeah, well, so, okay. But, I mean, that's a good play. That's a good play. But, again, it's simplicity of execution. So, for example, now you just said, okay, now let's say one guy's covering the quarterback. Well, you handed it off to a guy that's not a quarterback, so he doesn't usually throw the ball. Right. Now he's got to throw back to a quarterback who doesn't usually catch the ball. Right. And 
he's being covered by somebody. Now, all of a sudden, it's not as easy to execute. Still pretty simple. I think the guy shouldn't make a mistake. That doesn't mean he can execute it, right? So you've got a guy that doesn't normally throw, throwing a guy that doesn't normally catch who's being covered by somebody else. Uh, simple. There shouldn't be a mental mistake, should, but he may or may not be able to execute that. Same play, totally surprised the defense. Now, that means nobody on the defense is doing their job. The guy's wide open because nobody recognizes they should cover the quarterback. Well, no matter how bad he executes, you should be able to throw it good enough for the quarterback to be able to catch it because it doesn't have to be that accurate if nobody's around him. Good play. But part of the reason why that's a good play is because the defense is not, you're not giving the defense credit for doing its job. Right, so the defense would normally still keep an eye on the quarterback who's like, why is he running all the way over to the right? The, what happens is he'll run over to the right and then all the time, and you just ignore him. You've seen it three games. He runs over to the right after he hands off the ball, nothing happens. So you tend to ignore him or you forget, you get lulled to sleep. Then all of a sudden now, he's going for real and they're throwing the ball and nobody's covering him. The defense fell asleep. The defense lost his discipline. But so, it's a good play. I like the play. All right, so if you ever I'll use that, that play. play in. I'm going to put that play in. We call it James. All right. I want to come up with a bunch of plays like now. I'm excited. <laughs> it seems like, so it does seem like a game of chess where you have to think like five moves ahead on, well, uh, I, I, on how these it plays really, work. really, truly, a well-thought-out call game, a well-thought-out game plan on both sides of the ball is like master's chess. It really is. So, so given your experience, coaching, business, everything, why don't you now combine the skills buy yourself a football team and and coach it and be the first owner coach out there. I think Paul Brown may have been the first owner coach. And oh, number oh, I one, know. I can't afford a football team, but I, I, I have no interest in owning or running a football. It's just a business. It's another yeah. business. It just happens to be a business of football. Coaching the team is what turns me on. And the other pieces of business things that I think I'd be pretty good at, but... That's not what I want to do. What I want to do for as long as I want to do it, what I want to do is coach. And so I have, I have another idea for you. Thanks. I know you've written books about investing and, and there's even a book about you that's, uh, that's interesting about your career. Why don't you write a book now about, like you've written about investing. Why not really write a book about leadership and take a lot of these things you've been saying in podcasts and talks and really boil that down to like a classic on leadership? I the first thing I am committed to do to myself when I do step down from coaching is I'm going to write a book on leadership. I'm going to call it BAM. I have an idea exactly what I want to look like. I have a pretty good thought behind it. I think I'll probably get somebody to help me write it so it flows a little bit better. Uh, but I'm 100% committed to that. I think I've got something to say. Over four decades, over two decades of football and two decades in the business world, I don't think this stuff works. I know, I know it works. You got to be able to believe in it. You got to be able to execute it. So I am going to, I am going to do that. I'm definitely going to do that. I'm just not going to do it while I'm coaching. I'm going to do it as soon as I step down though. So, so here's an idea for format for the book. Cause I, I like things that have like an interesting format. Take like plays or investments. So each chapter is like two pages. The left page is like those X's and O's that describe a football play. And then the right page describes how you what the play is and how you did your leadership principles in in the how that play is a metaphor for your leadership principles. Then the next mini chapter, the next two pages is an investment or a, a business decision. And then you describe what the business decision is on the right page and you know how the leadership principles apply. And so you go back and forth between a football play, a business decision, a football play, a business decision. I think that would be an interesting format. I think it is a rich format. Now, what creates a little bit more complexity to it, then all the, 
by the way, the format I have in my head is, you know, kind of the big font, the small, like the one minute manager of who yeah, ate yeah. my cheese, that yeah. type of thing. It's easy to like read. It goes by. And I'll have, I'll, every principle though, will have real life stories behind it. Yeah. And hopefully the real life stories will be a very concrete example of kind of make it clear what I'm really talking about and how it actually works. If I go to the place, which I think I got to think about it more, go to place when I'm going to the investment, maybe some way I could use those as examples, but now I'm going to force an application to a specific mm. play mm. that might require more work that I need to think about, whereas I feel pretty good about the examples I would wind up using. Right, right. Like my, my, uh, my format example might be too simple. Might be, and then you have to kind of force everything. When something's too simple, you have to force everything to work when it might See, not so really... the more you got to force, the more I think it's complicated. Right, <laughs> but that's after after 30 years, 40 years of of, of coaching and, and running businesses, that that your intuition on that uh, overrides mine. That's fair. So, you had good insight on the plays before. So, well, uh, Joe Moglia, it's it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I really think the arc of your career has been the the arc of the hero. You've 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 done things. You've followed your passions. You've you've uh, really lived the American dream, and you're still following your passion. If someone's listening to this and thinking, "Boy, I'm I've been, you know." feeling stuck in my job. I don't even know what I'm passionate about. I'm hearing this guy, uh, Joe, discuss how he was passionate in football, wasn't able to make a mid-career shift. What would you say to that person? Like, how can they discover their passion at their advanced stage too? I would, literally, I would go back. The best advice I could give would be the spiritual soundness concept. Most of the time, people get lost. They don't know who they are. Sometimes people go through depression because they're so absorbed in themselves, they can't kind of see what's going on around them. So you got to get out of that. You got to think about others. When it comes time to be able to make, make certain types of decisions, usually you get lost because you don't know who you are. You don't, you don't understand kind of where you're going. It's difficult for you to be able to do that. I'd begin with a spiritual soundness concept. That's really what I would recommend. So you would think, rather than thinking about yourself, you would think, who, what type of person I want to impact or what kind of impact do I want to leave? No, sometimes when you're going through a funk, you get so absorbed in your sadness. You get so absorbed in your funk. You start to wallow in your misery and a little self-pity a little bit that you have trouble digging out from there. So stop thinking about yourself and think a little bit. I said others. Think a little bit about, well, by the way, giving yourself to others is a good way to get out of that as well. Be more generous. Help people out. That type of, that's a good thing. But if you got to make decisions, you got to go back. You got to go through the spiritual soundness exercise. You've got to like think about what matters to you and make a very, very small steps, little steps. You know, what, what, what is my, who am I just as a, where am I having my problems? What, what kind of father am I? You know, what, what kind of investor am I? What kind of person am I? But you got to ask better questions to kind of cover with those details. Like, like, what? like, like how do I know what matters to me? How do I how do I learn how do I learn that if, if, that, for, for thirty that, years I've been like going over spreadsheets? But 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 I might but, not have the muscle. But that no, that's the whole point. Well, you you one of the things you talk about your brains your brains are muscle and you got to work your brain all the time. Number one, I couldn't agree more. But right. the reason why you have a problem is because you don't know who you are. So when you say, well, like, how am I going to figure out? Who am I? Well, that's the point. You don't know because you don't know who you are, and you keep trying things. You're guessing. You do things emotionally, but just stop for a minute. Stop. Slow down. Stop everything and start to write. Just start to write. You're writing about yourself. Just keep mm -hmm. writing. All of a sudden, it starts to flow, mm -hmm. and then start to ask yourself questions. Just say, like, for example, you know, I'm a father. Well, how have I done, my father? How many kids do I have? Well, how have I done? 
how am I with Kelly versus Kim versus Karen versus Kevin versus Johnny versus Jeff, whomever it might be? What am I like as far as that? Just keep asking yourself questions. Whatever it is that's pertinent to you. If you're religious, talk about your faith. If you're, um, uh, if you happen to be in a particular industry, you invest. Just what is it about this industry that? Why aren't I satisfied? I'm in an industry I think I love. I think I'm good at. I'm making some money. Well, wh why don't I feel better about this? Why not? Uh, because you don't understand yourself. Well, you're probably in the wrong industry. I see. So while you're writing this, little gems will start to pop up. It's like you're sort of, so you're so, it's sort of like you're taking all this filth inside of you, throwing it on the paper. But then, like any, you know, it's like fertilizer. Some some things will start to grow, but you don't know what's going to grow yet. That's it's, it's a cathartic release. It's like going to a really good counselor. But nobody knows yourself better than you do. Allow yourself to dig in. When a therapist starts to go after somebody, the reason why I ask, well, what's it like growing up? What kind of relationship do you have with your mother? They're trying to dig, down, dig, dig deep inside you for you to find something that something's about so they can make a connection. Well, reality is nobody knows that better than what you do. But you got to go after it. You got to think. You got to challenge yourself. And remember, you can't show, share this with anybody. It's the first time you do. You subconsciously mm -hmm. look for somebody else's approval. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. You're just trying to get to know who you are. And you do that by 100% honest focus on yourself. Just start to write, and it starts to come. Don't give up on it. Keep writing. Take a little break. Go back, reread it. Is that really the way I feel about it? Just keep doing that. And after a while, things start to fall into play. It's cathartic. And if somebody's really struggling, it's also very, very emotional. And sometimes when it's very emotional, it's difficult to be able to get through. So you kind of tend to walk away from it. That's part of the reason why you have the problem, though, is because you don't quite understand who you are. That, that would be my suggestion. Well, again, Joe Moglia, uh, from 16 years of coaching to uh, <laughs> how many years on Wall Street altogether? So it was like 24, 19... not counting chairmanship. 24, and you're still on Wall Street because you're, you're chairman of, uh, of TD Ameritrade. And then back to coaching, and you're a successful coach at the you know uh, Coastal Carolina Chanticleers. It's an amazing story. I'm really so happy you came on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was, it was great having you here. I'm honored you had me, James. Thanks for taking the time. Thank, Thank you. you. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.